Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Silvestre Herrera. Herrera was serving with Echo Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, 142nd Infantry Regiment of the 36th Infantry Division, that's the Texas Army National Guard, during the Second World War. Specifically, we're going to talk about actions on March 15th, 1945, near an area called Mertzweiler, France. That's right on the French and German border, kind of towards the tail end of the conflict in Europe. Now, before we get into what's going on on the French and German border in 1945, it's worth talking about Silvestre Herrera. It's an interesting story. Herrera is living in Texas at the outbreak of the Second World War. And as the draft is implemented, he is, I think, in his mid-20s, which means he's absolutely within draft age. But throughout history, in the United States and elsewhere, anytime there's a draft for military service, you're going to see exemptions. Now, those are going to change with time. The reasoning or the numbers or whatever it might be are going to shift. But the idea of an exemption is that somebody is physically and medically capable of being drafted into the service to go fight. But there's something that keeps them from doing that. And we're going to say that it, you know, it could be during Vietnam, we heard a lot about student exemptions. People were in, in you know, college or off university and they wouldn't go. They had to finish their degree. We would have folks that were maybe tied to a very important war-winning industry, right? Somebody who's creating tires to be used on the Jeeps in the Pacific and they oversee a shift and their job is so important to the war effort the idea is let them stay. We'll give them an exemption. Their job is is too important. It's more important that they do that than that they go to basic training, pick up a rifle, and go try to land on, on Iwo Jima. It's a different responsibility, right? There's, there's going to be a lot of jobs around the country that have to be done during wartime. Exemptions are one of the ways that we protected some of those areas. Herrera is exempt from the draft, for a handful of reasons, but he's a, he's a father. He, I think he has three kids with one on the way by 1944. He's married, he's head of household, but that changes in January of 1944 and he is drafted. Again, we're going to see these exemptions change over time. And in 1941, you saw the movies, you've seen the pictures, you your the videos and the pictures after Pearl Harbor, there were lines out the door at these recruiting offices. Everybody wanted to sign up and go fight. They were pushing people away, right? We're two and a half years down the road. That changes. That you know, the we might have gone through all of the ideal candidates at this point, and now we have to expand our selection criteria a little bit. Maybe we were only looking for people age, you know, eighteen to twenty-two. Well, now it's twenty-five or twenty-seven or twenty-nine. See what I'm saying? We have to we have to expand who we are willing to let into the ranks because we got to keep growing the military. We don't know in January 1944 how much longer we have to fight. This, this, these conflicts aren't set to be over in the next year, year and a half. We will now we can look back and say that within about 18, 19, 20 months from January of 1944, this war is going to be over. They don't know that. They got to start meeting these numbers to get more and more people in uniform. So those exemptions change, and by January of 1944, Herrera is no longer exempt. He's drafted to serve with the 36th Infantry Division. Then his dad drops a bomb on him. Herrera, 27 at the time, his dad comes to him and says, hey, you remember how I told you that you were born in Texas? Well, actually, 
you were born in Mexico. We brought you here when you were you know, one or two years old. You're not an American citizen. What that means is that he has the ultimate exemption, if you will. We can't draft people that aren't citizens to go fight on behalf of the United States. So Herrera, having been drafted now, and something else to keep in mind, by January of 1944, he understands what he's getting into, right? There's an argument that in 1941, right after Pearl Harbor, people were signing up not really knowing what fighting the Japanese would look like or what fighting the Germans would look like. There's some pretty serious battles prior to January 1st, 1944. Herrera knows exactly what he's signing up for. Or maybe I should say, not getting out of. Because Herrera has the opportunity to raise his hand and say, hey, I'm not a citizen. You can't draft me. He decides against that. Says, nope, I'm going. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It's a commitment. For whatever reason, for any number of reasons, I should say, he goes to fight. He's going to land in Europe and begin fighting in 1944. So let's back up a little bit to make our way to March of 1945, kind of paint the picture for Herrera's action that month. Really starting with June 6, 1944, is going to be this major push on continental Europe to roll back Nazi Germany. From the start of the war, just about everybody understands that we're going to have to land troops on the continent and retake occupied territory. That really begins June 6, 1944, Operation Overlord D-Day, the the landings on the beaches, the airborne operations. There's going to be plenty of fighting before that, before and after June 6th. We're going to have fighting in Italy. There's constantly the thought that maybe there'll be a breakthrough. It never really materializes, but worst case, we've tied up German troops down there. The Red Army is pushing from east to west this entire time, continuing to push back on the original German advance into, into the Soviet Union. But we know we're going to have to fight on mainland Europe and move move into Germany one way or another. So June, July, really through August, you're going to see what's called the Battle of Normandy. And it's just that. We're fighting to expand the beachhead. We're fighting to really make sure that we can hold on to what we took on June 6th and 7th and, and build up our forces and continue the push through France into Germany. It's going to be a long fight. It's going to be a really long fight. It takes a few months to clear out Normandy and really get that beachhead. But then we decide for to uh, to kick off a couple other operations, and we're going to see them kind of taking shape south and north of, of Normandy. So to the south, by mid-August, something called Operation Dragoon is going to take place. That's an amphibious operation, another amphibious landing in France on contested beaches. Technically, these were enemy-held beaches, Nazi-held beaches. The Americans are going to land an amphibious force during Operation Dragoon. This is going to include some of Herrera's units that are pulled out of Italy to essentially, you know, I've been back and forth. I kind of want to say opens a second front. That's not really the case. This is still in France. There's still a pretty big allied landing, allied presence in France by August. This is south. Normandy is a little further north. It's kind of another front. Um, Nonetheless, there's going to be another area that Nazi Germany is going to have to defend against and have to keep an eye on. We've got a pretty sizable force now. Um, I think we're talking about 150,000 troops landing over a month period of time in southern France. It's at the very least a concern for Nazi Germany. That's going to go August to September. And then towards the end of September, there's going to be an operation kicked off. Kind of a, what's a little bit less than a Hail Mary? 
We'll call it a little bit less than a Hail Mary because Hail Mary makes it sound almost reckless. Operation Market Garden is going to be authorized and kick off, kicked off in late September 1944. And the, the design of Market Garden is to create kind of a northern path into Nazi Germany through the Netherlands. It's not successful. There, were, there was talk at the time in September of 44 that this could potentially end the war by December. There's a lot of debate now whether that was worth it at all. There were a lot of lives lost, a lot of American, British, Canadian um, lives lost in that battle. I want to say, um, gosh, 1,500 casualties at least in the United States and, and nowhere near that in terms of Germany. Germans were much more prepared to receive that fight than we expected. Nonetheless, we're going to have Operation Dragoon in the South, Operation Market Garden in the North. Dragoon is at least going to establish a foothold. Market Garden is going to be, you know, this one thing less than a Hail Mary. We come back and we are now in for a longer drawn out fight across France, eventually into Germany. It's going to be slow. It's going to be deadly. And it's going to take quite a while. Now, one of the tragedies, I'll say, in the Second World War, from my perspective, and there's tragedies in all war, but it's going to be what happens in January, kind of a decision point in January of 1944. So now that we've had Operation Dragoon in September, into Operation Mar- Dragoon in August, September, Market Garden in September, by December, you're going to have an operation kicked off by Germany that's really their last-ditch effort of the war. We call it the Battle of the Bulge. They call it essentially Operation Watch on the Rhine, I think is how it translates. It's Nazi Germany's last-ditch attempt to win the war. They're going to try to seize the Belgian port of Antwerp, and from there, the idea is that's going to be such a blow to the Allied war effort that we will sue for peace, that we'll negotiate a peace on the Western Front. Look, we've just taken a lot of France, if not all of France, back. Maybe there's a settlement to be reached with the Western allies and then Nazi Germany can turn their focus towards the red army, which is just marching its way into Germany. They're almost in Germany by this point. The battle of the bulge, of course, a major operation. There's gonna be a lot of American and allied lives lost. A lot of German lives lost by mid January. We can say that that operation failed. The Germans failed in their last ditch effort. And this is where the tragedy of one of many, but kind of a a big one for me in the Second World War comes out. By mid-January of 1945, Germany can no longer win the war. They're not capable of winning this war anymore. But we're also not going to see a surrender. And I think that's probably tied to the type of government that was in charge in Germany, or maybe the structure of government and a few key personalities. Nonetheless, the war by January of 1945 is unwinnable for Germany. And what we're going to see from January until May of 1945, five months, is just going to be the slow and steady destruction of their military, of their soldiers, of their cities, of their civilian population, because they're not surrendering. And that's not one-sided. There's going to be allied American lives lost that whole time, too. And it's, it's, I throw it in the camp of tragic because I don't think it had to happen. Germany could have surrendered, um, probably with, with relatively similar terms to the Western allies in January or February. But of course, it's hard to rewrite history. 
because who knows what the fight on the Eastern Front would have looked like. I don't think the Red Army was going to be stopped, even if Germany could put its full force uh, to the East. But nonetheless, what you're going to see by March of 1945, after the Battle of the Bulge has stopped or watching the Rhine has been stopped, is American forces all up and down the German border getting ready to move into Germany. Now, we're expecting a pretty nasty fight in Germany. Think about it. We've been fighting German troops all across France, but put yourself in their shoes. How hard do you fight when you're 100, 200, to 1,000 miles from your home in some foreign land that doesn't speak your language? That's one thing. When you're holed up on the outskirts of your town where your family lives, where you grew up, you're probably going to fight harder, You know, especially on the Eastern Front. But, but nonetheless, we're kind of expecting a nastier fight. It's going to be harder to move once we get into Germany. Allied units are staged all up and down the German border, including in one area called Mertzweiler, France. I'm probably mispronouncing that, by the way. It's about 20 miles from the border. And the Allies are going to kick off something called Operation Undertone that's going to be designed to create these beachheads across a few of the key rivers bordering on Germany, or across the Rhine in this case. That is where Private First Class Silvestre Herrera and his unit, Echo Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, 142nd Infantry Regiment of the 36th Infantry Division is going to take part. They kick off on March 15, 1945 as part of this Operation Undertone to gain a foothold across the river. And in pretty short order, he and his men come under intense enemy machine gun fire. They're pinned down. Herrera notices that his men are pinned down, private first class. Gets up and charges, throwing grenades and firing his rifle as he goes. The enemy machine gun in placement. He overruns it. Like overruns it, takes it, captures it. Takes eight German prisoners by himself. Just like that. Charging an enemy machine gun nest. Takes eight prisoners by himself. Moves those prisoners back to his line, falls back in with his guys, and gets on with the mission. That's crazy by itself, right? Um, I think that might, on its own, qualify, or, or it could have, it, it qualifies, because he puts his, his, um, puts his life at risk to accomplish something above and beyond the call of duty. So I would say that by itself qualifies Herrera for a Medal of Honor citation or recommendation at least, but that's just the first part of his day. They continue movement through the woods, encountering pretty serious German resistance and once more are pinned down, pinned down from a dug-in German position. And this is part of the issue that we're going to run into as we get closer and closer and then eventually into Germany is you're running into, you know, maybe more prepared German defenses. They've had longer to dig in. They know the areas the Allies have to come through. They're going to have things like maybe more wire, more machine gun emplacements, more mines. Mines are going to be heavily used in a lot of this conflict. And when we think about mines, there's a couple different types. You have anti-vehicle mines or anti-tank mines. We'll group those together. They're, they're going to go on roads. They're designed to blow up vehicles, blow up tanks. They're bigger, bigger explosion. Of course, a person somehow sets that off. Usually there's a weight requirement. So it only goes off when a vehicle rolls over it, which makes sense, right? If you have a, a anti-tank mine and it blows up with a person on it, it's going to decimate the person. They're gone. But you kind of just wasted a mine when you really wanted the tank that was right behind them. 
So sometimes there's a weight requirement within the mine and it might be, say it's 200 pounds, 300 pounds, where a person might not set it off, even jumping on it. But the minute a, a Jeep rolls over it or you know a tank for sure, it's going to go off. You have those types of mines and then you have anti-personnel mines, which are kind of the opposite. It's going to take very, very little to set off an anti-personnel mine. Now, the other side of that is these anti-personnel mines maybe aren't designed to kill. Of course, that happens in many instances, but there's a small enough explosion, small enough, um, a small enough explosion to where these are going to oftentimes wound the person who steps on them rather than kill them outright. Why would you want to do that? Well, we tend to not leave our wounded soldiers on the battlefield. And when somebody is wounded and can't make it back to friendly lines, it's going to require somebody else, maybe two more, maybe three. If you have a stretcher, maybe even more to get that soldier and move them out of harm's way. So if you have a mine that kills somebody when they step on it, you're down one enemy soldier. If you have a mine that wounds and requires, let's say two, to come up and remove that wounded soldier, that mine just took out three, at least in the short term, right? Some of these mines that Herrera is going to come across are in that category. These are anti-personnel mines that are protecting some of these machine gun positions in front of Herrera or between Herrera and his men. But earlier that day, we had success, right? Herrera had success. He charged right into the enemy position, took him, moved on to the mission. He's going to do that again. He's going to charge the enemy position across the minefield, but this time, in pretty short order, he's going to trigger a mine. Now, I've seen two different sides of this story, and they diverge quickly, but they come back to the same ending. I'm going to tell you both parts that I've now read and researched. I don't know that which one of these two it is matters so much as does what happens after that. But I'm going to give you both because if you're reading about Sylvester Herrera, you're probably going to see one or the other, and I don't want to confuse anyone. There's one account that Herrera steps on a mine. It's a mine. It shatters one of his legs, but he gets up and continues to hobble forward, steps on a second mine, and that severs his other leg, his good leg, below the knee. The other version of the story that I've heard is that this first mine that he steps on shatters one leg, severs the other below the knee. I don't know that which of those two it is matters that much. Either way, let's fast forward to Private First Class Sylvester Herrera, now in the middle of a minefield, missing half of one leg and the other shattered. You know how quickly he would bleed out and die? You know, can you imagine the pain that he's in right now? But instead of waiting to be medevaced, instead of just lying there, he rolls over, grabs his weapon, and starts laying down fire into the enemy position, suppressing the enemy machine gun now that he's at closer range than the rest of his men. So Herrera, who at any minute now could bleed out and die on the battlefield, hasn't stopped. He pours fire into that machine gun position, suppresses them long enough for his unit to get up, move around the side, outmaneuver, and overrun that position. After that position is knocked out, Herrera is treated by medics, moved to the rear, sent home, survives the war. For his actions that day, Herrera would be awarded 
the Medal of Honor by President Truman in August of 1945, just a few months later, right? In turn, remember, Herrera didn't have to go because he wasn't an American citizen, right? In pretty short order, Herrera would be granted citizenship, of course, as he should be. And later, let me just make sure I have the date right here. Later would be, actually might have been right about that same window, Medal of Honor, citizenship, and then he was granted the Order of Military Merit for Mexico. Because remember, when this happens, he's a Mexican citizen. So Mexico, this is awesome, sees this event of one of their citizens fighting on behalf of the United States with this heroic act. And Mexico says, cool, we'll give you an award too. So throughout his life, Silvestre Herrera was the only living person to uh, be able to wear at the same time the Medal of Honor and the Mexican Order of Military Merit. Again, Herrera would, of course, made it back from the war, survived the war to receive those awards and lived in Arizona when he passed away at age 90 in 2007. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.